here's our subtitle. Can you all all read that? Okay, read it out loud so I can know you, you got it. Okay, thank you. That's a pretty ambitious uh, goal, but that's where I hope to go. Here's the main idea. Okay, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven means please make us and all people obey you the way angels do. Um, so the original there is in uh, the passive voice. I recast it in the active voice and add the word please to emphasize that it's a request. But I think it means the same thing. Um, Did you have some before angels? Some angels. Good. Well, the ones that are still in heaven, okay? Good, good point. Uh, so how do angels do all this? Well, with alacrity, intelligence, and joy. Uh, what's alacrity? Quickness. Quickness. Thank you. Uh, and so distilling this all down to three words, okay, I would, I would say this means decree your precepts. Now, this is technical theological language, which we will explore in some depth. Uh, but this is the main idea. Decree your precepts, and it deserves some emphasis, okay? <laughs> we will expand on this idea as we go through. Here's an overview of the talk. <laughs> Uh, okay, here's a more use, useful overview. Uh, we're, we're just now finishing the introduction, so I would say we're going at about the right pace. <laughs> uh, okay, first let's define our terms. Uh, decree and precept, I mentioned they're technical theological terms. Here's just the ordinary dictionary definitions, not very interesting. Uh, <laughs> biblical examples of these words. Okay, let's read the first one. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So here, the psalmist basically defines the word for us. Precepts are commands or statutes. Um, and then Paul in Corinthians, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is a little more obscure but it clearly is connected to commands and statutes, but it is different. Uh, here's the prime precept. Okay, this is Jesus answering that question about which is the greatest law. Y'all know this very well, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So all the law and the prophets. This is, love is the law. Jesus is telling us, he's emphasizing what God's been telling us all along. Love is the law. Um, so back to the decree. This is our uh, confession of Westminster explaining God's eternal decree. This is probably the most controversial, difficult part of our confession. Let's read it together, okay? <laughs> I don't want to do this all alone. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Thank you. Um, here the scripture proofs that the Westminster divines offer in support of this doctrine. And here's one of them. This is uh, Paul, no, this is Peter, Peter's first sermon. He's, he's preaching right, you know, the day of Pentecost, okay? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I'm calling this the prime decree because I think this is behind God's whole purpose in creation. Okay, um, But clearly, just from the verse, you can see that God has set up all of creation to lead up to the cross. And that's that's where God's headed with, with the whole story. 
Um, so to summarize where we've got so far, thy will be done means we're asking God to make what he commands and his law actually happen. In other words, we're asking him to decree his precepts. Um, this leads to some hard questions. Uh, does God actually decree everything that happens? Wouldn't that make him responsible for evil? Wouldn't that make him evil? How does he hold us responsible if he decrees everything? Um, we'll try to answer those as we go along. So here we are in our outline. I have a story to tell you. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Once upon a time, I was standing right there behind this lectern, leading the congregation in the pastoral prayer, not the pastoral prayer, the prayer of adoration, you know. Um, when I actually uttered the words, decree your precepts, and that made Pastor Kerr snort laugh. <laughs> True story. <laughs> he was right over here. He says he doesn't remember it, but it made a big impression on me. <laughs> uh, okay, now let's go back to our text. <laughs> and look at it in context. Uh, so here's the immediate context. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, I think I see a kind of structure here similar to what we see in the Psalms and Proverbs where you have subsequent verses expanding and explaining the previous verse. You know, you, Usually it's in couplets, uh, but here we have, I think something similar is going on where you have the, the second petition is kind of expanding and explaining the first. In other words, what does it mean to hallow God's name? Well, it means his kingdom comes. You know, and what does his kingdom come mean? Well, it means his will will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. And so both of these point back to uh, help fill in the context. What, what, what does hallowed be thy name mean? Well, it means all this. And this is God's project. That, that is, this is what he's doing in creation. He is going to do all this. You know, we're asking him to do it. We're not capable of doing it ourselves. Um, we, he does graciously give us a role, a part to play, but he, if it's going to happen, it will be him doing it. Um, this is where I need Dr. Bleeker to uh, assist us and explain the joke here. <laughs> Go for it, dude. <laughs> Emantize the eschaton. What does that mean? Immanentize. Yeah. Right. So th this was a slogan of the conservative movement in the 60s and 70s. It was popularized by William F. Buckley, and it was a, uh, a slam against utopian ideologies uh, because they, they're all kind of sub-Christian ripoffs of Christianity. They're all envision this future utopia that's worth killing all these people for, and, and they always end up making hell on earth. So the slogan was, don't immunitize the eschaton, or mantize, or however you pronounce it. It, it was partly, part of the humor came from using big words. <laughs> uh, okay. This raises another hard question, though. Uh, if you look at the highlighted areas there, this is all with respect to God. Why is God so self-centered? Every, every petition here is referring back to him. And and it goes all the way back to the uh, prime precept, as I called it. You know, God wants to be first. What's that all about? So well, let's add it to our list of hard questions. Um, that should keep us busy for a while. All right. Okay, now let's start to try and answer them uh, with all this, what I call the metaphysical stuff. Uh, first, an easy question, what is metaphysics? Um, there you go. 
reading that? <laughs> okay, a division of philosophy that is concerned with the fundamental nature of reality and being, and that includes ontology, cosmology, and often epistemology. That is, ontology is the study of being, cosmology is the study of the universe, and epistemology is the study of how we know. Okay, so it's obviously very abstract and um, intellectual, right? Metaphysics, that, that just the name suggests there's something behind or before physical reality. So this is the principle that I want to focus on, creatio ex nihilo, which is Latin for creation ex nihilo. <laughs> <laughs> which is English for creation from nothing. This is our doctrine. God creates everything that is not himself from nothing. So this looks very simple, doesn't it? It, it is simple, uh, but it has profound implications, which let's explore a little bit. Uh, here, here's some examples. Okay, everything else is explained, but God's being is a mystery. There is no reason for him. There is nothing behind him or outside him, no environment that contains him, nothing that causes him to be. He simply is. That's what his name Yahweh means. I am. You remember that? So here's the bottom line. God is fundamental and absolute. And everything else is contingent. So this is the primary consequence or implication of creation ex nihilo. God is fundamental and absolute, and this will answer all those hard questions um, <laughs> worth emphasizing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I'm too polite, actually. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Okay, regarding the mystery of God's being, uh, this is not something, it's not a problem, okay? The aim of the theologian dealing with a mystery is to do away with the phrases that diminish the mystery, okay? We're not trying to solve the problem of God. We, we assume him. He's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Theological mysteries are not for resolving or solving. Theological mysteries are for naming, identifying, and adoring. So the idea is we, we need to stop saying untrue things so that we can encounter the mystery directly. And when we encounter that, that's God, and that's who we adore. Uh, so mystery is really good. Uh, here's a little biblical support for creation ex nihilo. In the beginning, God. Uh, Fill in the blanks. I mean, there's no necessary. Genesis 1-1 just assumes God. He's the starting point. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And we live and move and have our being in him. Which, by the way, Paul there is quoting a, a pagan philosopher. Um, so anyway, this is just a taste of all the verses we could adduce to support the idea. There's nothing in the Bible that actually says God creates everything that is not himself from nothing. But So we have to we deduce that from what is there. And there is a lot. There are many, many, many verses. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about ways we, we fail when we're trying to talk about God's transcendence. Um, we're, we're trying to get at what he is in himself apart from things he's made apart from creation. And these, these are common, well, at least the first one's very common. He's got the whole world in his hands. You know, we, we learned that very young. Uh, what's wrong with that? the same thing that's wrong with the next two, which, by the way, they're getting better. You know, God is outside time. We use that to talk about his transcendence, and it's true, but it also contains a lie, which is awkward. Um, and it's the same lie that's 
in the next piece here, God creates all history at once. Becky? Exactly, yeah. So the problem with all of these is that they situate God in an environment uh, that's not God. For example, he's got the whole world in his hands. Okay, so in your mind, you picture at least a hand, if not you know, a whole elderly gentleman out there with it, his hand outstretched. And uh, anyway, that occurs in some sort of larger environment where that could hold both God and creation, or the world in this case. And um, that is a lie. There is no environment outside God. And this is the problem with idolatry, with, with, with rather um, violating the second commandment. Do not make graven images. The, the images lie in many ways, but one way they lie is suggesting that God is not transcendent, suggesting that God occupies some sort of environment that is not himself. Now, of course, the Bible teaches us that God dwells in heaven, but heaven, it teaches us as clearly, is created. It's part of creation. It's not uh, his natural habitat. Um, have I beat this to death? Yes. Okay, let's go. Okay, creation ex nihilo answers the hard questions. Does God actually decree everything that happens? Yes. Wouldn't that make him responsible for evil? Yes. We're getting to that. <laughs> Wouldn't that make him responsible for evil? Yes. Uh, wouldn't that make him evil? No. Perish the thought. No. How does he hold us responsible if he decrees everything? Easy. <laughs> Why is God so self-centered? Reasons. What kind of reasons? Good reasons. All of this raises another question. Uh, aren't we getting rather far from the Lord's Prayer? No. <laughs> and finally, uh, the hardest question of all, why does God create in the first place? Uh, <laughs> the doctrine of creation is necessary to answer this question, but it, it is not sufficient. To really answer it, we would have to understand what it's like to be God, which we can't because his being is a mystery. Only God comprehends himself. We can know him truly, but we can't know him comprehensively. But I will tell you what I think the answer is, even though it's beyond the scope of this talk. God wants the cross. God created life, the universe, and everything as a stage for the drama of redemption. Okay, so let's work through uh, one of these questions. We'll start with an easy one, an easier one of the hard questions. Why is God so self-centered? If God creates everything that is not himself, then there are exactly two kinds of things. There's God and not God, creation, everything that he made. So far, so good. Uh, there's nothing else. There's nothing outside God. There is no standard of goodness outside God by which you could judge him. This was the lie that Satan, that the serpent fed Eve. He basically suggested to her, that he occupied a place outside God where he could look down and see God in some larger context and evaluate him against some larger standard of goodness. And he was inviting Eve to come out and join him on the patio and, and judge God. And, and ever since then, we've been born with the same basic nature. We, we assume that God is someone we can put under the microscope and evaluate. And we certainly have the desire to do it. We don't want to be the ones under the microscope. Um, if there is no standard of goodness by which to judge him, and if he is the creator of everything that's not himself, then there is nothing better than him. He is the best thing there is, quite literally. He is the standard. He is goodness itself. Um, therefore, it's right and good, and good for us. Uh, that God's primary commitment is to his own glory. There's a wonderful John Piper book um, about 
well, I'm, actually it's in the comments. We'll get to that. And I have a bibliography for you, so don't worry about it. <laughs> um, anyway, this is the pattern of the answers to all these hard questions. They all boil down to God's, God's absoluteness is the answer. Um, this one was a little easier one to get to. Here's a harder one. Um, this is one Matthew just asked about. Uh, but we don't really have time to work through that, so let's just... <laughs> Actually, we do. We have plenty of time. Um, if God creates everything that is not himself from nothing, then time and space and all reality have their being in God, not vice versa. That is, reality is in God, not the other way around. Time and space are in God, not the other way around. Of course, he's here. He's in time and space. Um, but he fills them. Uh, he, he, they're not his natural habitat. So reality is contingent as opposed to ultimate. It's made up like a story. I should turn on the laser pointer here. Laser. Failed. Okay, three. He fills reality but is not contained by it. And here's a verse. Uh, this is Solomon dedicating the temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? So that's just a hint that you know, reality is made up. It can't contain its creator. Uh, note how omnipresence and omniscience kind of fall out naturally out of this doctrine of creation. They, they just are innocent byproducts that are not difficult to explain at all once you realize all reality is inside God. Um, there's nothing independent of God. I've, I've actually heard a preacher one time say that creation was independent, as if it were outside God, as if it, there were some larger context that contained both God and creation. Um, there is nothing in reality God did not put there. This would include space and time and, you know, um, so therefore God decrees whatever comes to pass. So that last step might appear to be a leap, which we can argue about. Um, we are, really are getting close to the end here, and we have plenty of time, so this is exciting. Um, so th where we've been so far... Thy will be done means we're asking God to make what he commands in his law actually happen. Uh, creation ex nihilo explains everything uh, except God himself, of course, who is necessarily a mystery. These were the resources I mentioned earlier. Uh, these are online, so if you'd send me a link, I'll send you, send me your address, I'll send you a link to these slides and you can have a look. Really good stuff. I highly recommend both of these. Uh, and finally, we're to discussion. I've got some discussion questions here, and I invite you, you know, to pick out your favorite or whatever else might be on your mind, and let's talk about it. I'm going to turn on the light. Yes, ma'am.
It certainly is. Thank you. Bill. Thank you. Okay, someone from the other side. <laughs> Bill, uh, Tim. <laughs> yes, that's true. It actually happens, yeah. Yeah, that was actually, <laughs> where, number five, <laughs> four, four. That's a great question. Yeah. So there's a difference between the preceptive and the decretive will of God. That's that's kind of the usual way it's framed. Um, Chris. So that was sort of an answer to Tim's question. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Cynthia, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of it. We're, we're asking God to help us do his will, obey his precepts. And ev we want everyone else to as well, of course. Is that Mike?
the prayer has practical effects in, in us. Kathy? Totally agree. John. I'm not sure I followed everything. It seemed like you were touching on lots of interesting points, but I can't quite connect them together. Uh, your mom's going to help. <laughs> So to answer your question, John, yes. <laughs> Andrew. Okay. Uh, anyone want to answer that? How does it benefit God? How does that benefit him? I think that's the crucial point is that God is perfect. He doesn't need anything from us uh, or anything in creation. And in fact, if he were to change at all, it would be a diminution of his perfection. Um, so, but we, we can't add to his glory, but we can show it by depending on him and um, asking him for things and receiving them from his hand gratefully and being grateful for our troubles. That, that's, that's a big one. Uh, so God reflects his glory through the weakness of his people. Sorry, but that's the way it is. I wish it were through the strength and glory of his people, but <laughs> this is what we are. Bill. Joseph, you know, his brothers, put him in the hole, <laughs> and they kill him, sold him to 
sure that we could be the Savior for these poor people who were famine right there. And then to the country's brothers coming in, fearing that going in charge of all the rejects. Yeah, that is an example of God using evil for good. Um, Yeah, we tend to. It's true that this has profound implications for understanding, you know, the timeline in Genesis. Um, we tend to assume God is in time. We just assume time and space. We're we're creatures. We're we're spatial and temporal, and we're, we're we can't really tell that we're swimming in water, you know. But we are. We're, we're, we're in time and space, and we assume them. And we can't not assume them. It, and it's really difficult to imagine God in himself apart from time and space. That's the mystery. And we shouldn't, I mean, we should realize, oh, I can't do that. And God, you're so great beyond my understanding. That's the adoration part. Cynthia. Somebody read the confession. That's good. <laughs> yep. Yeah, God ordains the means as well as the ends. He doesn't just say Job will be saved. He says Mary will pray for Job and Job will be saved. Yes. Absolutely. It's a manifestation of the prime precept. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, God commands us to pray. There's one reason to do it. Right. Yeah, it's true. We don't. If we ask according to his will, right. Which he's going, he's going to do it anyway, and here we are praying for it. <laughs> Yes, agreed. smart one.
Thank you. So this re reminds me of a <clears throat> another theological expression with big words. Anthropomorphic accommodation. Anyone? anyone? Say again? <laughs> Anthropomorphic, having to do with mankind. Um, accommodation, making accommod uh, adjustments, listening to toddlers is the idea. You, know, you, you have a youngster who's not going to understand calculus, so you, you, you kind of abstract it, distill it down to you know, some easy to understand concepts. And so the, the idea is that God uses obvious anthropomorphic accommodations in the Bible. He talks about his arm, his finger, his hand. And we know, I mean, everyone, no one mistakes that for meaning. He's got body parts. Okay. But there are other more subtle accommodations which we might mistake for literal things. Um, I don't have an example off the top of my head, but I, oh, the one Ronnie brought up was, uh, I think was an anthropomorphic accommodation, but I forgot what it was. Changing God's mind. Oh yeah, you often see God changing his mind in an argument with Moses or something like that. And that seems to argue against the, uh, the idea God is outside of time or the idea that God is un unchangeable, he's immutable. Um, so what do you make of that? Well, anthropomorphic accommodation, that's what I make of it. Um, kind of breezy dismissal of a whole big argument, but you get what you pay for. <laughs> I regret, yeah. It says at the beginning, uh, he gives us the interpretive principles, uh, and, uh, and Samuel is speaking as God's prophet. He says, for God is not a man that he should change his mind, or that he may repent. For God is not a man that he should repent, that he should change direction. In that same chapter, uh, you know, 20 verses later, God says, I repent, I repent. <laughs> Yes, here's an analogy I find useful. God diffracts his, himself through different facets of reality, of, of creation. And what we're seeing is a lot of different angles and pictures that even if you add them all up, you don't have the whole, but um, they correct each other and they're all important. Um, so if, it, like if you grabbed hold of one and went too far, you'd probably be in error before long. Um, one hard question I forgot to mention is free will. What about free will? Anyone want to talk about that? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay, let me just give you my standard feel on that subject. It's, uh, someone brings it up. I, the first question is, free from what? And, and that helps clarify what you're talking about. Um, and so, you know, the Calvinist believes that yeah, our wills are free to do what we want to do. There's nothing constraining us to act contrary to our nature. Whatever, it was Edwards who said, whatever we want most in the moment is what we choose. Um, yes, Becky. Um, I'm not sure what you mean. What, maybe you would like to try. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Oh, yes, that's it. I'm sorry. You know, I, I was assuming if God is sovereign and in charge of everything, then where's human dignity? Where's human free will? Are we not puppets? Et cetera. Okay. And um, the answer is no. <laughs> sorry. We do go crazy. Um, so I left off in my spiel about free will. Uh, so we're free from coercion. We do what we want. What we're not free to do is want what we don't want. You have no choice but to want what you want. You, you are programmed, if you like. You're stuck wanting what you want, unless God changes you, of course, which he does when he saves us. But the natural man comes into the world doesn't want God. You know, God's the last thing you want. Um, and he's free to do whatever he wants, but he can't want what he does not want. Um, I'm not sure how that ties in. Exactly. That's right. Accommodation. Preach. <laughs> yeah, um, what's the verse? Um, we love him because he first loved us. And it's not that we're so grateful that we love him. We wouldn't love him if he didn't love us first. He gave us the love. Our natural inclination, yeah. That's a great question. I, we assume that we, we know, but really, <laughs> what do we know about heaven? It must be pretty good. It, it, yeah, it's better than the other place. Uh, the Bible, you know, for a, a, the sacred text of a whole religion is, is awfully reticent about the afterlife. We, we do have a little bit, um, but... I get the feeling it's because we just wouldn't understand it. You know, it, it's, it's telling us as much as it can without misleading us too much. And, and if it tried harder, we would just mess it up worse. Um, that's my guess. I don't know. Okay, um, I have a prayer I wrote for us to finish up with. Can you all read that with the lights on? Will you read it with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for creating us to know and love and glorify you. Thank you for saving us by Jesus' blood and restoring us to that high purpose. Please make us see your glory and understand you better so that we praise and worship you better. Please reveal yourself to us by your spirit and your word. Make us know you, love you, and obey you. Make us trust your word because it is yours. Make our adoration complete. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
dismissed. 